Please turn with your Bibles, in your Bibles with me, to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6. Today we get to look at one of the accounts that probably everyone is very familiar with. It is interesting that this is the only miracle of Jesus that is found in all four gospel accounts in Matthew 14, here in Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. They're very close. John gives a little different perspective from a little earlier point in the account. But we know from verse 32 here in Mark that Jesus is withdrawing temporarily with his 12 disciples or apostles. And the question that we need to ask as we continue here in this gospel is what events do we know for sure happened between the execution of John the Baptist and this temporary withdrawal to a lonely place by Jesus and his disciples? Well, first we know that John... The Baptist was buried. We looked at that in chapter 6, 29. And then John the Baptist's disciples report to Jesus what had happened to John. Then the 12 apostles return from their short mission tour. We see that in verse 30 of this chapter in Mark. And Herod hears all the reports about Jesus' work, which causes him to make the statement that we read in Matthew 14.2, and part of it's here in Mark, but in Matthew 14.2 we read, Herod says, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why all these miraculous powers are at work in him, as he hears about Jesus' works and the works of his disciples on their tour. Now, something else is important to the context of our passage today, and that is that the Passover is approaching. And this means that huge crowds of Israelites were already heading towards Jerusalem when we see this account. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Mark 6, 30 through 44. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they'd done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, 
This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they'd found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. First, let's answer the question that's explained here about why Jesus did try to get away for a short respite with his disciples. And from the various accounts and all the information from the context, we can suggest several reasons. First reason they wanted to get away was to avoid any premature confrontation with Herod Antipas. That would be a good reason for Jesus. He leaves Herod's territory of Galilee and goes just beyond its border near Bethsaida. We find that out from Luke's account. Jesus does not fear Herod. It's just not time yet. We see him doing this often. To be alone with his father is another reason that Jesus wanted to get away with his men, especially as he reflects on John the Baptist's death. Another reason was to then help his own disciples deal with John the Baptist's death and prepare them for what's ahead. And the reason that we see here in the text, especially explained in our text, is for refreshment. In verse 31, tells us they all needed some rest. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place for a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And what happens? In verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Can you picture that? There were 5,000 men, and no telling how many women and children. John tells us in his account in John 6, 2, that most of these people were following Jesus, quote, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The crowds were growing as more and more people were on their way towards Jerusalem for Passover. And they heard of everything that Jesus was doing. So let's sum up the different reasons that so many were following Jesus. That's important to note. 
People had different motives. Most were there for some kind of selfish reasons. We could describe it as first century thrill seekers who just wanted to see firsthand this show, the healings. Some were there because of a genuine need or interest. And some were there probably because of the possibility that this Jesus really might be the Messiah. And if they were convinced by any more miraculous signs they hoped to see, then they wanted to be a part of making Jesus their king. This is exactly what John says almost happened after this miracle of feeding the 5,000. In John's account, in John 6.15, he writes, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The picture there, see, went a little higher up, away. There was a lot going on here, a whole lot going on. And now let's remember the reason why Jesus was trying to withdraw to a desolate place with, this, with his disciples and then consider what was Jesus' attitude towards this huge crowd? What was it? Even though he and his disciples needed rest and even though most of the crowd had selfish reasons for, be there, for being there, Matthew says in his account in 14, 14, he says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Our account in verse 34 in Mark says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And in Luke's account, he writes that Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. What would be the normal inclination towards a huge crowd catching up to you once again? just when you were almost actually getting away with your guys for some much-needed R&R. Honestly. Well, speaking personally, it would be something like this. A tendency to ignore the people and get to that really lonely place higher up on the mountain where it would be difficult or impossible for all the masses to follow. Or... Another option would be to hightail it back to that boat. Or just dismiss the crowd and tell them there will be no healing signs even teaching today. But that's not what we see Jesus do. Even though he and his disciples were obviously exhausted, and greatly in need of rest. There's several important lessons here in this passage that point to how great our God is 
and how not great we are and how the twain meets. And the first one here is that Jesus cares for you. Even though most other people in the world, especially the great and powerful, do not. And we take that for granted. Or we do not think about it as much as we should. Now, the context of our passage, remember, in this chapter, we saw this incredible account, a flashback of why John the Baptist was executed. True? Right after that is this account. What happens when we put this together and see the contrast between Herod's birthday party, banquet, and Jesus' feeding of the 5,000? Well, let me list some things. This is amazing. Herod's birthday banquet was in a palace. Jesus' banquet was in a lonely place. Herod's banquet was for important people. Jesus' was for whom? The masses. Herod's banquet was really a drunken orgy. Jesus' was a pleasant country meal. Herod's banquet was immoral, followed a dance by his wife's daughter. Jesus' was holy. It followed Jesus' teaching and healing. Herod's banquet ended with a murder. Jesus' ended with a picture of Jesus himself as the bread of life. Herod's banquet demonstrated that Herod cared for nobody but himself. Jesus' pictured Jesus caring for others. What a contrast. So after Jesus had been healing and teaching about the kingdom of God, it was late in the day. Everyone was hungry, but there was no food. And what were the disciples thinking? Same thing you and I would be thinking. Surely now Jesus would dismiss them so we can get away to our retreat and they can go find some food somewhere. The disciples said to Jesus, this is a desolate place, like he didn't know that. The hour is late, like he didn't know that. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages so that they can buy themselves something to eat. Well, as it becomes obvious that this problem's not going to just go away, Jesus tells his disciples something really pretty incredible, which is the focus of what we need to learn today. He answered them, you give them something to eat. How would you take that? Well, just like these guys, 
For most of you may know this, but one denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So this amount that's in our text is over eight months of wages. Which is what happens when you figure out how much it's going to cost to feed 5,000 people plus the women and children. Can you see what's going on here? The conclusion is obvious. This is an impossible request. So Jesus asks them something else then in verse 38. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they find out, they said five loaves and two fish. In case you're interested, one account says they're barley loaves. Five loaves and two fish. Well, that certainly helps. So we need to think about this for a minute. Jesus just told his disciples, and it's emphasized greatly in the text, You give them something to eat. And since Jesus knew the nature of the problem and was already aware of what he was going to do, which John tells us in his account, the only reason that he said what he did was to impress upon his disciples that they could do nothing by themselves. James Montgomery Boyce has a, an explanation here that I've just got to share with you. What a lesson for us to learn. We tend to think that we can do at least something And that at worst, all we really need is some specialized help from Jesus. We need to remember what Martin Luther said when he was reflecting on our, quote, nothing. Martin Luther said that our nothing really is nothing and not a little something. Yet we do have what God has first given to us. And although we can do nothing of spiritual value with it by ourselves, we will find that it is useful and sufficient if we place it in Jesus' hands. That is what happened here, of course. The disciples could do nothing, but they had five small loaves and two fish, and when they gave them to Jesus, they found that they, that, that they were all that was necessary. What did Moses have when God sent him to Pharaoh with the demand, let my people go? All he had was a staff in his hand. But although Moses couldn't do anything with that staff, when he gave it to God, God used it to perform the miracles that led to the emancipation of his people. And, of course, what's the other big example? David, when he went up against Goliath, had a sling and a few stones, but they were enough when God guided David's missile. So what can you do for Jesus? You know the answer as well as I do. Nothing at all. 
but God has given you something that can be used effectively if you place it in his hand. Spurgeon, relating the matter of the loaves and fish to his preaching, understood this. And we all need to. Spurgeon wrote, Truly, he who writes this comment, what he's doing right now, he who's saying this, has often felt as if he had neither loaf nor fish. This is Spurgeon. And yet for some 40 years and more, he, what is he saying? I have been a full-handed waiter at the king's great banquet. It's like that for anyone who recognizes his or her own spiritual impotence and places all he or she has been given in Christ's hands. Our nothing really is nothing, and not a little something. But what he has provided us, we give it to him. That's what's happening here in our text. So our second lesson really in this text is pretty straightforward, but in this context with this illustration that really happened on that, in that lonely place by the Sea of Galilee around the little town of Bethsaida, we learned something that Jesus was trying to get his men to understand early on. In spiritual matters, we can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And remember, they had just returned from a mission in which Jesus had given them authority. They were healing people, casting out demons. How many times do we have to learn this lesson? Every day. Jesus said... John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Well, the next lesson is really the other side, the opposite side of this second lesson, and that is that Jesus Christ is sufficient and the only one who can meet every spiritual need. And we say that, when we say it a lot, we start forgetting what that really means. So we need to stop and make sure when we say that, we are really thinking about what it means. We know that's what the Bible teaches. And isn't that, this what Jesus is leading his disciples and us to recognize Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We can bear fruit, much fruit, and fruit that will what? Abide or last. But only if Jesus is working through us. Since he alone is able to meet anyone's spiritual need. And notice the conclusion 
that we see in our text in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. 5,000 men and whoever else was there and all of them ate and were satisfied. What does that tell you about your Savior and Lord? What picture is this of your Savior and Lord? It means, this word satisfied means that they had all they wanted and they were fully satisfied. You and I don't really understand this particular illustration like these people did. If we get hungry, we just go to the fridge, the pantry, the grocery store, the microwave, fast food place, or our next door neighbor. What did these people do when there was no food? They faced desperation, starvation, and if there were children there, oh, we don't need to go there. In other words, they were more likely to realize that food was a gift from God and something for which they were exceedingly thankful. People knew more then than now that God alone provided food. And Jesus used these examples all through his ministry to teach that we will never find full spiritual satisfaction unless we find it in him. Jesus said, John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. In John 4, 10 and 7, 38, he says, I'm the living water. Those are pictures that are meant to stir us. They're meant to bring us to our knees in worshipful adoration and gratefulness before our God. Well, there's at least one more lesson, but one big one. God works usually through people. Although Jesus alone is sufficient for all human need, he nevertheless many or most times chooses to work through us as channels by which he meets that need. And this applies to us as well. Jesus could have just called down food from heaven, been a lot more fiery, glorious looking, By the way, he kind of did that with his people in the Old Testament. And they got sick of it after a while. Nothing satisfies us if it's not him. He could have made a loaf and fish just appear in each person's hands. I mean, just go crazy with this a little bit. There are lots of other things he could have done. But he didn't. 
So after Jesus had sent the apostles on their mission tour, he emphasized he emphasizes by this incredible miracle here his usual means of ministry through people. These guys have to learn this. Every generation has to relearn this. And he sums up all this in the Great Commission, does he not? And Jesus came and said to them, A lot of authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Nope. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you know something's coming. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the good parts of what I've commanded you. The parts you agree with that I've commanded you. No. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's three participles in here. The job is to make disciples. The participles should be going, baptizing, teaching. That's how we do it. Whether it's next door, cross town, or Taiwan. Going, baptizing, teaching. So Jesus is teaching his disciples and all of us something really pretty incredible here, isn't he? He's more or less saying, I knew that you did not have sufficient food or money to feed all these people. I knew that. And I knew that you had no way of getting it. I never expected you to feed them from your own resources or by your own power. In asking you to feed them, I was asking you to trust me. Without having to tell you, I was giving you the opportunity for what? To bring to me what little you had and trust me with it all. What does that just do to your fear, my fear, my insecurity, my whatever it is about anything having to do with being a witness to Christ? It just wipes it out. No matter whether you have very little, you give it to him. He's the one that uses it to bring people to himself. So when we think about this feeding the 5,000 from now on, we, we need to think, keep in mind and ponder these four big lessons here. Jesus cares for you even though others do not. What does that do to my whining? Well, it just kind of erases the whole thing. In spiritual matters, we can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. What does that do? Well, that just kills arrogance, self-confidence, the wrong way, pride, everything else that gets us in trouble. 
Third, Jesus Christ is sufficient and the only one who can meet every spiritual need. Knowing that turns us loose in our dependence upon him and we look for him to work. And if he doesn't work the way we want, we still know that he's good and that his purposes will be fulfilled. And lastly, fourth, God usually works through people. And I'm looking at them right here. His people. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of other lessons in here. <clears throat> they're, they're maybe not as big as those, but they're pretty important nonetheless. Let me just run through a bunch. So what happens when you literally go crazy in a passage. You go, oh, man, how many times have I read this? Always be new. Jesus gave his disciples the example of withdrawing from needless danger. We're starting with one we probably don't think about. What does that mean? Martyrdom or any other type of suffering that is sought as a form of self-glory is not endured for the sake of the Lord. Jesus knew it was not his time. He got out of Herod's territory. Not because he was afraid of Herod, even though Herod killed John the Baptist. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He knew. It's a great lesson for us. Willing to stand and being unwise about when to, two different things. Secondly, the importance of rest and solitude, even when in the midst of serving the Lord, is a lesson here. These guys were exhausted. Jesus said, let's go away and rest. Interrupted, but they got there. And did they learn anything on this particular retreat? Not what they expected. How great was this? Again, where is Mark getting his information from? The testimony of a guy named Peter, who was always jumping to conclusions and stepping in the way. Isn't Mark supposed to be the shortest and most concise gospel Yes, guess which account is the longest in this, about this miracle? It's Mark's, which tells me maybe Peter had a lot to say about this. A lot that he learned. And when you read his letters, you can see it coming through. What he learned is important and what's not. Also, the importance of spending time away from work with those people with whom you labor. It's important. The need to show compassion for those in need, even when those people are what? Fickle and selfish and sometimes clueless. And notice that the need for rest and solitude sometimes must be sacrificed to meet even more important needs. That one probably none of us like, but it's important. 
Along with meeting the needs of others, we also must faithfully minister the truth of the kingdom, witnessing to people's need for spiritual salvation in Christ. There's a big movement amongst professing Christians and evangelicals and everybody else together. If we just show them the love of Jesus and there's no concern about ever communicating the truth, you can show them the love that you think is only from Jesus, but there's a lot of people out there caring about people who are doing great things for them, all of which are important. But for us, we've got to be concerned with this. We've got to be concerned about showing the love of Jesus and making sure those people know what the love of Jesus is. Jesus taught his disciples to do things in an orderly and careful manner, just as God does. Did you catch that? He got them to sit down by fifties and hundreds. It's not chaos. In verses 39 and 41, we read that. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass so that they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. And what did he do? I'm showing you my love. No, he says, gave him a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Did you catch that? His disciples were passing out stuff that just kept coming from the five loaves and two fish. I I can't even picture what that must have been like. And then they picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. And Jesus wanted them to be that part of it, that hands-on part of it. In 1 Corinthians 14, we read, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, but all things should be done decently and in order. See, after this miracle, people could count what was left over in the 12 baskets. They could see who got fed. Everybody was satisfied. Did you get it? And the obvious lesson that always is here is obey Christ even when all the reasons for obeying him can't be seen. That shows we really trust him. Well, what's the supreme lesson then, if we're going to draw, try to draw any more distinctions? You and I have to learn to trust God to supply what seems impossible. Sometimes he brings us to the ends of our creativity and designs and plans just so that we'll see him provide in a way lots of times that we never expected. And sometimes it's by means that we don't want to be a part of. But at the end is you and I realizing how much greater God is than you ever thought possible. And how much more we need to depend on him. Is that a good thing to know, to learn? It's vital. And God knows how to do that exact thing for each and every one of us. And it is usually in the context of a church, of 
his people in which much of that happens. The disciples looked everywhere at first, didn't they? Everywhere but where? Except to Christ to be the supplier. Send them away. Let's just give them some money and we know we don't have it, but anyway, we just want them away from here so we can go rest, but we'll say it to be nice so that they can find some food. It'd be like an army ravaging the north part of the Sea of Galilee. They looked everywhere except to Christ first. Even after, even after Jesus had sent them out by pairs without him to actually be working miracles by his authority and in his name. That's me. Is that you? Look everywhere first, except where we should. Let's pray. Oh God, what an account. Your word just brings us to our knees in humble adoration as we realize how great you are, how faithful you are, how you complete what you start, how your redemptive plan is just so glorious, something we never expect. You gave us what we needed, who we needed, because you knew we could never stand before you on our own. What a way to call us to yourself. Lord, we cry out to you. Sometimes we know it is so painful to learn these lessons. And sometimes it's just glorious to learn these lessons and to see what you're doing. And we know that you put us amongst your people so that we could learn this together. And we pray that you would open our hearts to be able to learn, to be able to grow, to be able to share and encourage one another as we find out more and more about how great you are. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? We haven't had this one in a while, but I think it's sort of appropriate. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.